pray and then we'll get into God's word for this morning. Father, we come before you asking that you would grant our prayers. And Father, we also ask that as we look at your word this morning, your Holy Spirit would be moving in and through it and me to communicate your truth to your people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just say that you have a friend who calls you to his house, a friend that's been sick and you know is really in the process of dying and uh, they know their departure is imminent. So you go there and you talk with them, you pray with them. And right before you leave, they say, I want you to take something with you. Uh, It is that suitcase over there uh, next to the wall. And uh, you say, well, why do you want me to take that? And they said, well, recently I have received a very large inheritance and I'm in no condition to enjoy it, but I can use it for good. And so there's $10 million in that suitcase, and I want you to take it with you. And uh, after I die, I want you to give it to Calvary Bible Church. And um, I I don't want you to do it now because I don't want thanks. I don't want any recognition or even a tax write-off. I just want you to give it to the church. Can you do that for me? And so a little bit shocked and nervous, you say, sure, I I would be honored to do so. And so you leave a bit paranoid with $10 million and you take it home and close all your windows and lock all your doors and hide it as best you can. But before you do, you kind of open up to make sure it's actually what was supposed to be in there. And sure enough, there's just bundles of $100 bills in there. And a note, a notarized note saying that the money belonged to your friend and that he was giving it to Calvary Bible Church and that he asked you to do it after his death. Well, that night, of course, you can't sleep because who can sleep with $10 million hidden in their house? And uh, you tell yourself that, uh, you know, you need to get that to the church. And how do you go about donating $10 million for somebody else anyways? Do you just bring a suitcase to Don Chernock and say, here, um, uh, what do you do? I'm sure that would work with Don. So if you want to try it, he's willing. But let's say you're the next morning you wake up and you discover your friend has died. And so they ask you to come over because you're close to the family and you're caught up with the funeral arrangements. And so you just decide you'll just wait until the next week. And yet you've got this money and you're kind of scared that it, something might happen to it. You want to put it in the bank, but then you're scared that uh, the IRS might think it's yours or that it's stolen. They might charge you taxes on it or something. And so you decide to take a little bit of the money out of the suitcase and have a security system installed in your house. And so this you do. And uh, another week goes by and you rationalize to yourself that you've gone through a lot because of this money and that uh, you really deserve something for the burden you've had to carry. And so you take a little bit more from the suitcase and buy some nice clothing and an expensive dinner. Later, you buy a car and then you buy some furniture and many other new things. And you keep telling yourself that you're going to give it to the church. And besides, you've only spent a small portion of the whole. And since nobody really knows how much is in the suitcase to begin with, since the note did not say, uh, no one will suspect anything beside you've done it for a good purpose and you deserve it. Thus, lust and greed for 
power and pleasure begin to control your life. You begin to eat out at fancy restaurants. You quit coming to church. You begin to hang out with worldly people and take exotic vacations. And your friends are concerned and they begin to wonder because you just rejected them. And you're living this the high life, but... You can't live the high life because you don't have that kind of money, but you do have that kind of money. And pretty soon word gets out and the police find out. And one day the IRS and the FBI show up to your house with the search warrant. And they find your super secure safe that you had installed and they make you open it. And within that safe is just a couple hundred dollars left. And that note that your friend said... Uh, that it gave with the money saying this is to be given to the church. So the next day the FBI come and make an offering of what is left. You've squandered the $10 million that was supposed to be given to Calvary Bible Church. Now how do you think... Uh, people would feel when the newspapers have on their friend of dying man squanders $10 million that was supposed to be given to Calvary Bible Church. And how would God feel about it? Well, we're going to find out this morning as we look at a treasure that God has given to each and every believer for the benefit of Calvary Bible Church. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. The theme of 1 Peter is suffering. Peter writes to remind his readers of their identity in Christ, their resources in Christ, and that they need to be godly examples even in the midst of suffering and persecution. The book can be divided up into three general sections. There is a salvation section, a submission section, and then a suffering section. Ours uh, is in the section on suffering and uh, where Peter gives a whole list of commands of what we are to do in the midst of our suffering. Follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh is seized from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time... Already is already for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has been, has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Whatever, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are going to look at verses 10 and 11 and extract three directives concerning the discipline of serving so that we can bless others and give glory to God. The first thing we note is you have received a special gift. Look at verse 10 where we read, as each one has received a special gift, each one. The, the question is, well, who is the each one? Well, we learn this at the very beginning of the book where he says in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, to those who reside as aliens, and then he goes on to say, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. In other words, believers. To each one, to each one of you believers is given a special gift. That's how the New American Standard has it translated. Has received a special gift. Now, it's important to understand that he is addressing believers. Why? Because if you don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way, you don't have a special gift. Therefore, you can't use it for the glory of God. You're a gun with no bullets. You have no resources. There's nothing in your suitcase. It's empty. Now, if you think about this, it's very critical to consider, especially if you haven't been serving God, you can serve serve as an unbeliever, but many do not. If that is the, the case, if you don't know Christ... Your guilt remains on you. You are guilty in your sins. You have committed sins. You've committed, really, you're guilty in Adam even before you sin. You're born a sinner because Adam's sin and guilt is imputed to you. And not only that, you commit your own sins, especially the sin of unbelief. And you have broken more of God's laws than you can even imagine. So you have all this sin, all this guilt, all this judgment upon you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ... All that just abides on you. It's like a big, sharp, double-edged sword hanging over your head by a thread, ready to fall upon you. And God sees your life as constantly rejecting his love gift to you, which is the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus came to earth to die that you might have eternal life. And though you may profess him, though you may say you're a Christian, if you aren't actually a Christian... It's because you don't want to bow the knee to Christ. And because of that constant rejection, you aren't saved. You're lost. And maybe, like many do, you have thought in your mind, well, I'm not going to give depart from my sins. And I've done some good things. And surely God is going to save me. And now you're not only rejecting Christ as Lord and Savior, you are taking your good deeds, maybe the best of your religious deeds, and you're trying to mingle them with his blood and somehow help Jesus save you by your own works. 
Do not be deceived. Your deeds are but filthy rags in the sight of God. You may have grown up in the church. You may have gone to a Christian school. You may know all the Bible verses, but I'm telling you, if you've been here for baptisms, you know there's been a lot of people like that who then came to Christ later. After professing Christ for years. And you may object, oh, Pastor Jack, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again the third day. Very good. The demons also believe that. And the demons shudder, which is a lot more than most who profess to know Christ do. You may know a little or you may know a lot, but unless you humbly come to Christ... As a helpless, hopeless sinner, nothing in your hands to bring, but simply to the cross to cling, you are lost. And you have no more saving faith than the devil himself. It is as the deceiver would have it, and as you yourself, not wanting to part from your sins, would have it. You're a pretender. And you're foolish to continue any longer in that state. But the cure is rather simple. Christ extends the free gift of eternal life to you. And he says, believe on me. Trust in what I did and I will save you. Today is the day of salvation. You need to do that. You need to be like the woman in Luke 8. You remember the woman who had spent her vast fortune uh, trying to heal herself? She was very rich and very wealthy and yet spent All of her money until she was at the end of it. She had tried herself. She had trusted her money. She had trusted other doctors. And yet, when all else was failed, when it was hopeless, when she couldn't do anything about herself, she reached out to touch Jesus. And drew from Jesus the power of God. And she was instantly healed. Because of what Jesus did and because who Jesus was. Yes, we must all come to the end of our own rope and turn to Jesus Christ in faith or we cannot be saved. I say this because I don't want to go on any further and act as if this is about all of us. It is not. It is about those who know Jesus Christ. I am confident of better things concerning many of you, things that accompany salvation. And so let's continue. If you don't know Christ... This text isn't for you. And I would encourage you to give your life to Christ so it can be for you. But notice our text says, as each one has received a special gift. It's like a large suitcase full of spiritual money. And God wants you to take that and use it in the church. That treasure is given to you by God, not for personal use, not to be locked away, but for you to use in the church, whether it be this local church or the body of Christ at large, to serve the church of Christ. The word gift, as each one has received a special gift, is not the normal word for gift. It is actually the word charisma. The word we get charismatic from, the word we get charisma from. It comes from the word charis. The word charis is the word grace. A charisma is a grace gift or a gift of grace. When you are saved, God graciously gifts you. He gives you abilities with spiritual gifts. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12 and we'll see how this is. We'll look at two texts and just survey them quickly. 
Because I want to establish that every believer has a spiritual gift. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, Paul is writing about the gifts that everybody receives who knows Jesus Christ. And starting in verse 3 of Romans 12, he says this, For through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, actually, Paul addresses spiritual gifts in chapter 12, 13, and 14. It's the longest section in uh, the book, discuss, or in the in New Testament, discussing spiritual gifts. We're just going to look at some key texts here, because I want to just make a few key observations from these two texts. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, where he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So he's talking about spiritual gifts. And then down in verse 4, he says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Then in verses 8 through 10, Paul lists various gifts, many of them signed gifts, uh, which appeared while the New Testament was being written, no longer functioning today. And then in verse 11, he says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Look down in verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Now, there's three important facts I want you to take away from these two texts. There's tons here, but here they are. Every believer has a grace gift, a spiritual gift, a special gift from God. If you know Jesus Christ, the suitcase has been delivered. Secondly, God gives the gifts to whoever he wills and whatever gifts he chooses. It's not up to us. It's up to God to give us what he wants to give us. So you don't, you can't complain because, oh yeah, you gave me this one and I wish I had that one. That's what was going on at Corinth that Paul has to address. Third, every spiritual gift is to be used for the edification of the church. In other words, there is no such thing as the spiritual gift of a private prayer language. All gifts are for common good, for spiritual edification of the church. They're not self-seeking, self-edifying gifts. They're others-oriented gifts. They're for the edification of the church. 
There are two general categories of gifts that God gives to people. First, there are common gifts which God gives to believers and unbelievers alike. The ability to do math well, the ability to play an instrument, the ability to be a great architect or an artist or, you know, a trash man. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, The ability to be diligent at whatever you do. Whatever you do, your common gifts are given to you, not for the benefit of the church, but for the benefit of society, the benefit of society. This is why when we were talking about the discipline of work in a previous message, we learned that the Puritans had a very interesting thought about work and their vocation. They did not go to work and strive to be excellent at that work so they could make more money. That was a lower tier motivation. The top tier was to give glory to God and the second tier was to benefit society. They saw themselves, if I'm a carpenter, I want to be a great carpenter to bless other people. If I am a politician, I want to be an honest, God-honoring politician so I can bless society. If I am a, you know, auto body person, which of course the Puritans didn't have cars back then, but if they were here today, they'd say, I want to do great auto body work so I can bless society. So God gives common gifts or common graces to everyone, believers and unbelievers alike, so that they can use those to bless other people. Spiritual gifts, however, are for the edification of believers in the church. I believe every spiritual gift is a composite gift, and we'll see why in a minute. And what I mean by composite is God doesn't just say, well, Jack, I'm calling you to preach and don't do anything else. No giving, no encouraging, no helps ministries, only preaching. No, that's not how it works. Everybody gets a mixture. They're their own little formula of God's gift. And so God gives every believer some sort of gifting. And I think it's a composite gifting, as we will see in a minute. Secondly, we need to be good stewards of our gift. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Because every believer has received a special gift, Peter says we need to all employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So, it's as if the Holy Spirit gives you this suitcase full of spiritual money and says, okay, start spending it at Calvary Bible Church. Start spending it for the cause of Christ in this world. The phrase, employ it in serving one another, comes from a word that really describes a table waiter. One who waits or is an assistant or who labors to serve other people. It's, it's, it's really uh, not anything glorious. It's just being a servant. One who waits to serve, to employ your gift, to use your gift to serve one another. And uh, this whole employ word, and as the NASB has it, and serving are both active verbs. There's one's a verb, one's employs a verb, the other one's a participle. And what that means is it's ongoing. So anticipated in these this verb tense is, listen, if Jesus saves you from hell, if he grants you everything depending on life and godliness, if he gives you a spiritual gift, of course you're going to be using it to serve one another, obviously. Why wouldn't you? What good reason do you have for not doing that? Of course you're going to do it. And so he puts it in the active tense that you're going to make it a habit of using your gift. And how are you to do that? Look again at verse 10 where he says, as good stewards. What is a steward? Well, at that time, if you were extremely rich, 
and you were appointed to be a steward, you would be kind of like the house manager and everybody else in the house would be under you. All the other servants would be under you. So you'd be kind of the manager, the overseer, the the one who is responsible for everything that goes on in the house. And as a good steward, you would make sure that your master, the owner of the house, was blessed by your labors. In the same way, God gives you a spiritual gift. It's not your gift to keep and own. It's your gift to manage, to bless the owner. So the owner is glorified. The word manifold, where we see here this manifold uh, gift, uh, manifold grace of God. You say, well, what is that? That's talking about multifaceted, very colored. And this is why I believe that all gifts are composite. It's not just a single grace. It is a multifaceted, many parts type giftedness that each believer receives from God. Granted, there may be some things that are more emphasized than others. You may have equal strengths in multiple areas or one really good strength and a little bit in others, but I think it is a multifaceted, varicolored, uh, like the facets of a diamond. It's not just a one thing. And this is why the New American Standard translators translate it special because each one is diverse unique and given to each one individually and not only that we'll see another reason as we get down the text so the question is this we'll just stop at this point how are you doing how are you doing with that treasure god has given you to bless the church how are you doing if you're not Giving that gift to the church, you're robbing glory from God. You're robbing us from blessing. And you're robbing yourself of eternal rewards. You're refusing to believe that it's actually an important for you to serve in church, that it's an optional thing and that you don't have to do it and it's not that big a deal. And therefore, if you don't do it, it's okay. It's not okay. I mean, why is it that so few people serve in the local church? I mean, every time I get together with pastors and I'm sitting there for any length of time, we always say, yeah, why is that? I don't know. We talk about it. I don't know. Is it the world that's distracting them? Is it is that they don't know Christ? Is, is uh, they're just selfish? But that just doesn't sound like somebody who's a new creature where old things have passed away and all things have become new and you're excited about knowing Jesus and serving the Lord. It just doesn't seem compatible with the new birth. It isn't compatible with the new birth. And you just I just wonder, how can you take communion? Uh, how can you call yourself a Christian and just show up and receive the blessings of other gifts, but you aren't going to contribute? The gift you have, you're keeping your suitcase at home in the super secure safe. And how can you know you have a special gift given to you by God? How can you know that you're to be a good steward of that gift and yet just not do it? This is a mystery to me. It is a mystery to me. I... I don't know why. I I wonder about it. You know, I think to myself and I talk to other people who 
who are involved in serving, they go, man, as soon as I came to Christ, I was so psyched, man. I was so jazzed about getting involved in church. I couldn't wait to get involved. I've been involved ever since. I go, yeah, me too. So why is it that 70%, 80% of the people in your average local church don't do anything? It is a mystery to me. Here's some reasons. Here's some reasons. One, you're lost. You don't know Christ. You don't have a special gift. Therefore, you don't desire to use it because you don't even have one to use. That could be a very real problem. I am sure that is probably a chunk of the people who aren't serving. They just don't know Christ. They religious? Sure. Calling themselves a Christian? Sure. Serving in the church? No. If you have been in the church for a length of time, you know, if you've, if you've watched baptisms, if you've listened to the testament of the baptism, how many people grew up in the church, knew the word of God, knew the gospel, called themselves a Christian, and at some later point in their life, gave their life to Christ. You know how many people are in that category. That should bother you. That should bother you if you're not serving the Lord, if you're not employing your gift as a good steward. If you have no passion, no desire, no history of serving in the church, Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? And you know the solution. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not believe he exists. Not believe that he merely died on the cross and rose again. Yes, you need to know those things. But trust him. Part from your sins and trust him alone for salvation. Not him in your good works. Him. Period. Today is the day of salvation. Do that if you have a history of not serving. Secondly, you may be using your spiritual gift, but in a very miserly manner. You know, maybe there was a time when you really were cranking on your whatever ministry that God has given you to do or a variety of things that God has given you to do. But then the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and distractions and the busyness of life have kind of caused you to pare it down. And now you're just barely dabbling in ministry. Well, I do a little bit every once in a while now and then. Listen, you're going to stand before Christ. What you do in this life impacts eternity. Christianity is not a spectator sport. How would you like if 90% or 80% or even 70% of your body decided not to work anymore? Would that be good? No. What if only your head and your heart and lungs worked? I mean, you'd be dead soon. Now, granted, there are times when because of sickness or injury or trial, uh, a Christian for a time is forced to sabbatical by God. His providence forces you to take a break and forces you to have other people serve you. I'm not talking to you. Please don't think I'm talking to you if that's the case. There are times when you just can't do it. You can't do it. But if you're thinking to yourself, oh, good. Yeah, man, I am really busy. I'm working 60 hours a week and watching TV and going to worldly amusements and doing stuff for 25 hours a week and I just don't have any time left for the Lord, so I'm too busy. That doesn't work. 
Beware of making excuses of squandering your gift, either hiding it or using it for yourself rather than for the glory of God. You will give an account to God. And so you need to use your gift for his glory. Third, it could be that you don't know what your gift is and that you aren't sure how to be a good steward of it. That's a very uh, possibility. But you know what? Most of the people I talk about just say, hey, man, I'm, I got saved and I just like, where do you want me to do? And I just started serving and I decided, discovered I was good here and that's what I do. That's usually the normal thing. I mean, don't expect a telegram from heaven, you know, to drop out of the sky in front of you. This is the breakdown of your spiritual gift. You have been given a gift consisting of 52% helps, 21% teaching, 12% discernment, 10% encouragement, and 5% giving. Don't, don't expect that. It's not coming. The moment you are saved, it is as if God drops you into the middle of a big city and says, go get a job. And you go, well, where? Look. And so you go out, you start moving, you start filling out job applications, you do interviews, and eventually you're working somewhere. And granted, they may fire you or you may figure out that's not the place for me and you may have to shift a little bit, but eventually you end up in a place where you're working in the city. In the same way, God saves you, plunks you down in the church and says, get a job. And then what do you do? You start serving. And you might find, oh, I'm not good at that. Oh, these people didn't like that. Oh, I killed my Sunday school class. You know, you move around. And then all of a sudden, you find the place that's your place. Or maybe a variety of places that you're playing. There's a lot of people who got their, you know, fingers in 15 things in this church. One thing is for certain, you will never discover what part of the body of Christ you are, what your spiritual gift is if you're stagnant and just like, like waiting for the telegram. I try this sometime. Try moving your car without turning the wheels. You go out in the car and say, okay, I'm going to take your car. It's parked this way. I want you to spin it around, put it away. But you can't move the wheels. No rolling the tires. I mean, the only way you can do that is with a crane. But if you get in there and you use the wheels, you start moving You can do it easily. And if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, start moving in the direction of service and you'll end up where you need to be. God will guide you. I remember when I was graduated from summer, if you were to come up to me in 1991 and say, so Jack, give us your, your, your ideal ministry ticket right now. I mean, just write your own, this is the greatest ministry plan I can think of and just give it to me. Here it is. This was my plan before I started seminary, in seminary, after seminary. It's still my plan. They say, well, what is that? I wanted to pastor a church. No, I'm doing that. I didn't even have to apply. I just, right before I graduated from seminary, they just called me up. Even this church, I never filled out a resume. I still don't have a resume. I just, it just God brought me there. He, he brought me there. I wanted to teach at a seminary part-time, but, you know, there was no seminary in Idaho I could teach at, so God moved me down here. I wanted to start writing books when I was 40 years old, so when I died, I'd leave kind of a written legacy. 40, I wrote my first book. So what's interesting is, 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 is Psalms 
Psalm 37 verse 4 says this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That does not mean delight yourself in the Lord a little bit so God will give you all your selfish desires. That's not what it means. It means delight yourself in the Lord and God himself will place in your heart his desires so that his desires become your desires. He will give you the desires of your heart. That is, the desires of your heart will come from God, not yourself. And so if you're going to serve, just ask yourself, what are my desires? Do you desire to teach? Do you desire to serve? What do you desire to do? Just start there. Start there. I mean, if I dropped you down in the middle of a big city and said, go get a job, you're probably not going to say, you know what? I think I want to lay asphalt for a living. Not very people want to do that. And let's see, I want to insulate people's attics. Probably not something you would be interested in doing. You would say, you know, I'm really interested in... And then you'd go there first. Do that in the church. And you will see, as I saw in hindsight, that God gave me my desires. And then as I was moving in the ministry, he guided me to where he wanted me to be. So I ended up in those ministries where God would use me. He gave me the desires of my heart. And as I served, he moved me into place. And so three is get serving. Get serving. Start moving. Pray about it. Go along with the desires of your heart and start serving. Don't wait for the telegram. Just start working. You know, try fourth grade kids. You know, go to the children's ministry and say, Brock, is there any, like, anything that, you know, you think a guy like me or a guy like me could do? And you're saying, no, no, there's nothing here. There's no, there's no ministry here. Go away. We've only got 400 kids. And what would we use with you? Believe me, there is something you can do. And if you're hesitating because you're so busy, I would encourage you to just go to one of our lay elders and say, listen, I want to tell you about how busy I am and why I can't serve. And these men, they're working their jobs and they're getting up and having their quiet times and they're preparing their lessons and they're going to their elder meetings and prayer meetings and sub-ministry meetings. And some of the elders have three or four or five or six ministries they're overseeing and meet with those people on a regular basis. Plus, they have guys they're discipling. And you just tell them, yeah, this is why I'm so busy and I can't serve. And they can explain how to change that. Now, it would be fun to get into all the various spiritual gifts and do a whole series on that, but we can't. Peter didn't have time to do that either, so he just took all the gifts and distilled them down into two general categories. And here they are. Look at verse 11, where Peter gives these two overarching categories, the kind of gifts God gives. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And when it says here, whoever, it's really the word if. It's a conditional statement that's saying... For sake of argument, and we're assuming it's true, that if Jesus Christ has saved you from hell and given you a spiritual gift, of course, you're going to be using it. And if it's a speaking gift, a speaking gift, then you are to use it in speaking the utterances of God. 
So the original language anticipates that you will use your speaking gift if you're given a speaking gift in the church. That is, in this body or the church at large. Now, this implies something, doesn't it? If you're going to have a speaking gift, if a speaking gift is given to you, and you are to speak the utterances of God, it implies that you need to know the utterances of God, the oracles of God, the sayings of God, the word of God. It means you have to study. Whenever you find somebody who says, yeah, I want to be a teacher, I don't like studying, I don't like reading, then you know they don't have the gift of teaching, they have the desire to be noticed, to have attention, to have power, and to have fame. All those who are called to teach are are those who are called to study. They go together. And if you want to teach and you don't want to study, don't teach. Because you have to study. Now, not all speaking gifts require the same amount of study, but all of them require that the speaker understand the word of God because they are to all speak the oracles of God. The words of God, the sayings of God. If you have the gift of exhortation, you need to exhort with the word of God. If you have the gift of admonishment, you must admonish with the word of God. If you have the gift of encouragement, you must encourage with the word of God. It is all the speaking guests are for the dissemination of the word of God in the local church. And so if God has gifted you that way, you need to use your gift to spread the word. Speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Psalm 145 verses 10 through 12 says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known the sons of men, your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Here we see they give thanks, they bless, they speak, they talk, they make known. That's what those do who have speaking gifts. They don't make known themselves. They make known the oracles of God, the word of God, the sayings of God. The second general category of spiritual gift is found in the middle of verse 11. Look there. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So here now you have the whole other general category, serving gifts. Again, you have present active verb and participle. Um, Whoever serves, the verb is to do so as one who is serving the participle by the strength which God supplies. It's assumed that you're going to be serving. If God has made you called you, gifted you to be a servant, why wouldn't you serve? What reason could you think of for not serving? Because I want to disobey the Lord. I want to hide my gift. I don't want rewards in eternity. I don't want to bless other people. You know, what reason is there? There's no reason. So it just assumes you're going to do it. The word serve is the same root word we get deacon from. A deacon, of course, is a person who who is officially appointed to an office. But here the word is used in just a general sense that everybody who is going to glorify God is going to be a person who's going to take the gift God has given them and serve people with it. Serve one another with it. They're serving gifts, help gifts, administration gifts, things like that. Think of all the ways there are in a church this big to get involved. I mean, we could kill off anybody. And if enough people volunteered, we would make more work to do. More ministry, 
more impact on our church, more impact on our community, more impact in California, the United States, the world. We would keep generating. As long as there's workers, we would have work for them to do. And notice the criteria by which all Christians who have serving gifts must serve by the strength which God supplies. Serving requires constantly walking in the spirit, praying, trusting God and asking God for assistance. It's that strange thing. Like Paul said, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I worked harder than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Yes, you employ your strength as you're asking God for help, as you're trusting in his word, as you're relying in his spirit. We might summarize this last part of verse 11. Whoever is continuing to serve must continue to serve in the strength which God continues to supply to those who continue to ask for assistance. That's the whole idea here. As you are always trusting God or relying on God and serving God, he will constantly be supplying the strength you need to do whatever task he has gifted you to do. By the strength which God supplies. And yes, there are many specific gifts alluded to in the New Testament, but they can all be placed under these two categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Gifts that require words, gifts that don't. And I imagine that many of you might have a combination of those. Some of you are more lopsided towards the speaking gifts, others towards the serving gifts, but all of you are have gifts. Now, I want you to see the big picture here because it's really kind of awesome and it leads us to our next point. God saves you by his grace. He saves you by his grace. He then gifts you by the Holy Spirit, gives you this suitcase full of spiritual money and says, okay, start spending it on the church. And then he says, and if your gift is a speaking gift, I'm giving you the words you need to use. And if it's a serving gift, I'm giving you the strength that you need to use. Why? We're going to find that out in a minute. John Calvin commenting on our text said, whatever part of the burden you bear in the church, know that you can do nothing but what has been given you by the Lord and that you are nothing else but an instrument of God. Take heed then not to abuse the grace of God by exalting yourself. Take heed not to suppress the power of God, which puts forth and manifests itself in the ministry for the salvation of the brethren. Let him then minister as by God's power. That is, let him regard nothing as his own, but let him humbly render service to God and his church, end quote. But why would God do this? Why would God be the one who saves you. God be the one who gifts you. God give you the words. God give you the strength. Why does God do all of this? This is the third point. So that you can give him glory. Look at towards the end of verse 11. So that, and when you see the so that there, that is called a purpose clause. It's the because, or this is the reason, or this is the motive, or this is the purpose. So that in all things, God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So here we see that God saves you, gifts you, empowers you, gives you the words so that you can give him glory. That is the reason why you need to serve. That, that is so critical. 
If you come to church and serve so you can get attention, so you can please your in-laws, so you can find a wife, you know, if you come to church because you've got any of these motives and, oh, people are watching and, oh, I wanted this and I want this power, I want this position, I want to have a say, I want people to know I'm a big shot or whatever, whatever your motives are, apart from the glory of God, they're bad. God's glory must be it so that God may be glorified in everything. And this is so critical to get into your head, but very difficult to apply because we're selfish sinners. Calvin also said, quote, God does not adorn us with his gifts that he may rob himself and make himself, as it were, an empty idol by transferring to us his own glory, but that, on the contrary, his own glory may be everywhere, we may everywhere shine forth. That is, that it is therefore a sacrilegious profanation of God's gifts when men propose to themselves any other object in the use of their gifts than to glorify God, end quote. I mean, we know what happened. You know what happened. You're supposed to move somebody and they called you and you said you'd show up and along with 18 other people and you show up and you're the only one. Now, here it is. What are you going to do? Why are you serving? And see, there comes a time, well, nobody else showed, and what a bunch of losers, and I'm the only one who's done this, and it's going to take us forever, and I only had three hours to do this. And, you know, all of a sudden you get in this big griping, and give me that thing, and give me them bunks, and stuff it in the truck. And, you know, the whole time you're just, you're not, you're, you're fleshing it out, right? You're not serving by the strength which God supplies because you're not walking in the Spirit, and now the whole task is a misery, Instead, you need to show up and say, oh, so I'm the only guy? Well, praise God, there's got to be some sort of good purpose for it. So let's pray and we'll do whatever we can. I can give you three hours. You serve to the glory of God. If others don't show up to help, so be it. You're there to serve the Lord, not men. You don't get noticed by people after you do such a good job, so be it. You're noticed by your king. If what you want to do, which is really good, which is biblically supportable, gets thwarted so that you can't do it because people who don't understand don't understand, God's providence is working all things after the counsel of his will. And if God wants it to happen, it will happen. And if he doesn't want it to happen, nothing you can do can overthrow his providence. Serve with your eye on God, not men. You know, I mean, think about this. Do you think that when I preach, I really want to please you? Do you think I preach the way I do because I'm trying to please you? Come on, you know it's not true. I would not be stabbing you every Sunday because I'm trying to please you. I'd be telling jokes and have you leaving all happy and laughing every day. That would make me feel good. It'd make you feel good, but it wouldn't make God feel good. I'm, I'm commanded to preach with all authority and to let no one disregard me, to let no one escape. Everybody gets the knife. People come up to me after saying, I felt like you were preaching right at me. I was. <laughs> Every week. God is watching me when I study. God is watching me in the pulpit. God tells me I will incur a stricter judgment. I'm going to stand before God, not you. 
I mean, I like it when people are pleased. Don't get me wrong, but that's not my motive. I like it when more people come, but that's not my motive either. I'm here to please God. You need to please God in your ministry, whether you're a bulletin folder, a chair setter upper, somebody who works in the kitchen, somebody who works wherever, whatever your ministry is, I'm doing it for the Lord. If you don't like it, talk to Jesus. Complain to the master. I'm just a servant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's just what our text says. And if the glory of God isn't your motivation for serving, you're going to serving, you're going to grow bitter. You will. It will just overtake you. You'll burn out. You'll you'll lapse into self-seeking, self-glory, self-promotion. And when you have self-motivating ministry, you're not walking in the spirit. You're not giving glory to God, and we better not to serve anyways. You're not drawing from the strength which God supplies and you're not serving by the oracles of God either. And people who do that, they start trimming the word of God. They adjust the word of God. We'll stay away from these subjects. We won't talk about these things. You know, this is too controversial. Yeah, we won't practice church discipline. Yeah, we don't want to maintain. You know, people will be offended. Okay, it's God's church. He gets to say what goes on in his church. If you don't like his church and the way he wants it done, then go somewhere else. But God says what goes on in his church. God is the one who gets to direct it. God says it's for him. It's not for you. I'm sorry. The music isn't for you. The scripture reading isn't for you. We all do all things for the glory of God, not to please men. And then Peter points out at the end of verse 11, we are to do, uh, we are to glorify God through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus is the one who's dying on the cross enables us to give glory to God. I mean, you all know that you're a sinner, but you also know you're forgiven in Christ. The scriptures say you're perfect in Christ. You have perfect atonement in Christ if you know Jesus. So how is it that you can serve a God? If you're, if you're still sinning, and as John read earlier in 1 John 1, 8, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And he says the same thing in verse 10 after verse 9. If you still sin, how is it that you can approach a holy God who is infinitely holy and serve him? Because of the blood of Christ. Because Christ's blood, his perfect righteousness, clothes you so you can be reconciled to God and give glory to God. It is through Jesus Christ that we are able to give God glory in all things, even though we continue to sin. The blood of Christ keeps cleansing us from all unrighteousness. If you are a sinner saved by grace, you just need to get out that special gift that treasure that God delivered to you on the moment you believed. You've had it in your possession all the time and he wants you to use it to bless me, to bless everybody else, to bless the church at large. Don't keep it at home in a safe. Don't squander it on yourself. Use it for the glory of God. Use it for the blessing of others. And in heaven, God will reward you because you did what he asked. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this text. And Father, I pray that each one of us would examine our lives and we would all consider our labors for you, for the gospel, and for your kingdom. 
I pray that we would all consider what you would have us to do, that we would seek to do it with excellence and train others to do the same thing, that we might multiply ministries, that Calvary Bible Church might flourish, that we might impact our community, our state, our country, and the world. I can't even imagine what it would be like if we had 100% involvement. It would just be amazing. Father, we know that's what you ask us to do. As each one has received a special gift, we are to all employ it in serving one another as good stewards of your manifold, multifaceted grace. May each of us be committed to always be serving you for all the days that we are able, that you might be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.